If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and we are going to be having a conversation today with Gabe Cooper about his book, Responsive Fundraising. Now, I have to share with you, I actually first met Gabe Cooper through a friend of mine and also a podcast guest, Chad Wolver. It's definitely worth, if if you want to learn how to get more out of your banking relationship and what to expect from your banker, definitely worth listening to Chad Wolver's episode. But Chad said to me, you know, you really need to meet Gabe. Gabe's, Gabe's an entrepreneur, has started a CRM company that's called Virtuous, and, you know, just had a book that came out. You need to meet him. Well, listeners, you probably know that we like to bring relatively fresh voices to you. And when books first come out, oftentimes they're on a lot of podcasts. So I was like, okay, let's let's hold this back just a little bit so we can have Gabe on when Gabe is more of a fresh voice. And of course, you know, quite frankly, it also means that we get all of the wisdom that Gabe has gained, or at least a big chunk of that wisdom since that book came out. Because as someone else who's had a book out, and you know, I've said this before on the podcast, gosh, I think that, I think my book came out like six years ago, and I would write such a different book today. So we get that perspective from Gabe as well. Now, before we talk about, and before I introduce Gabe, let me also remind you that it is early November, and that means 2022 is around the corner. And we at Successful Nonprofits are planners, and that means that we have actually already planned our webinar schedule for next year, and it has gone live on the website. So make sure you go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. We have webinars in 2022 about strategic planning, board development, time management for C-suite and executives within nonprofits. So make sure you go up to SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Check out our schedule. And the good news about us putting it out this far in advance, you know, you can get a January or an April date on your calendar pretty easily now. So check it out. And now 
let me continue my introduction of Gabe Cooper. I've already mentioned he's the founder of Virtuous, which is a CRM and marketing platform exclusively for nonprofits. He also, in addition to being the co-author of the book, Responsive Fundraising, has a podcast that he co-hosts by the same name, Responsive Fundraising. So if you really enjoy this conversation, make sure you check out his podcast. Now, I will share with you, when the book first came out, Gabe very graciously sent me a copy. I read it, and I wrote a review on the on, on our blog. And a couple things I do want to note. I loved the book. It presented some really great ideas, some of which were new ideas for me that I that frankly really intrigued me. But I also have to say that it's my my thought that the book is probably best for fundraising professionals with at least a few years of experience and an understanding of fundraising campaigns. So if you're new to fundraising, this is going to be a great conversation, but maybe hold off for a year before you read the book. And the book's going to have a lot more meaning for you. I also have to say, though, this book is especially good for people like me, people who came of age during the heyday of direct mail and phonathons, who entered the workforce before there were cell phones. If there was, there either was not email in your office or shortly after you entered the workforce, email appeared, but there was one email address for 50 or 60 or 70 people in your office and someone had to print it out and bring it to you and then you had to go to a terminal to type out their response. So if that's the day and age that you came up in, this book is going to have a lot of great interesting ideas. They're going to be thought-provoking and will undoubtedly change the way you're thinking about your own organization's fundraising. So with that really long intro, Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dolph. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, of course. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. And I, I understand that you've got a story about responsive fundraising that comes out of South Carolina that really drives home kind of in a, in a nutshell what responsive fundraising is. Yeah, that's that's true. And and really at its heart, responsive fundraising is how do you love on your donors? How do you treat them all like major donors and build a personal relationship, right? Which honestly requires you to listen well to donors and respond in real time and be personal. So we had an organization that um, they're, they're, uh, had a lot of donors in South Carolina this couple of years ago in a hurricane hit the coast of South Carolina. And so in order to love on those donors, they um, use geolocation, which is a way just to sort of track the latitude and longitude of all your donors to see where they are. And so they identified all of their donors who lived up and down the coast who would have been impacted by this hurricane. And then they used um, a combination of marketing automation and a couple of calls just to send a few emails and a call to be able to check in on their donors and make sure they were doing okay. So the goal here wasn't you know, let's ask somebody for money in the middle of a hurricane. It was, hey, are you doing okay? We still care about you. Is there anything we could be doing to serve you? And they did that using some big data analytics, geolocation, and then marketing automation as a way to really lean in and engage donors more personally. We always say generosity begets generosity. And so that organization did a really great job of being generous to their donors first before asking anything so I, I love that example, you know, and, and it's hard to do that all the time, but man, that just made such a huge impact in life with those donors. So I need you to unpack the sausage or how the sausage is made just a little bit here. So help me understand when you say marketing automation, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question. We're seeing more and more um, nonprofits actually adopt automation or marketing automation, but 
effectively what marketing automation does is it listens for key signals from your donor. So the easiest example that every nonprofit knows is a first gift from a donor. So you would listen for when that first gift comes in from a brand new donor. And then you would say, you know what? These are the touch points I want in the first 30 days. So marketing automation sits and listens in the background for that first gift. And when it happens, it can automate multiple communications on multiple channels. So you might say, I wanted to get an email on day two, an email on day five, and an email on day 28. And I wanted to get a text message on day one and a text message on day 13. And then I want somebody from our team to call them within the first 10 days. And then at the end of that, I wanted to get a postcard in the mail, right? So automation actually will automate all of those touch points sort of along that, that new donor welcome series journey so that your team doesn't have to figure out how to pull all of that off logistically. It basically sort of takes what you would love to do as a fundraiser and automates it so you actually have time to pull it off. So I need to share with you, I made a first-time gift to an organization in the last month and a half, and what you described literally happened to me. And I was, and as a, as an old as an old time fundraiser, I was really impressed. So, I, of course, I got the auto, the immediate email. Thanks for making your contribution because I made it online. But then they probably saw that I was not opening the other emails because I'm really not so big on email. And so I got a I got a postcard in the mail that just said, mm. "Hey, thanks so much for your con- contribution." No, sorry. First, I got a letter. Got a letter thanking me for my contribution. Then I got a postcard thanking me for my contribution and telling me what a difference it was making and yes. telling me a little story. Then I got That's a third awesome. postcard. Sorry, second postcard, but third thing in the mail that essentially said, "Hey, we are so grateful for your contribution." Some donors like you want to know how they can give to us on a sustaining level. So, hey, let me tell you, let us tell you about our monthly donor program. A little postcard. And you know, and, and, and I, I collect these things, as you probably do. I'm like, oh, yes, thank you. Oh, yes, thank you. But what I was really impressed with was about 10 days later, I got a letter in the mail with a detailed explanation of how to join their sustaining donor society. Um, the website I could go to to do it, as well as a contribution envelope, because I am a little old school and I like to write a check and put it and actually put it in. Um, but I was just so impressed that they actually gave me all of these different options leading up to the final ask with an envelope. Yes. And there's so many great things about what you just said. Number one is understanding your donors don't just live on one channel. They don't live on email. They don't live on text. They don't live on letters or phone calls. They actually live in multiple channels. We're all real people and we live on multiple channels. And so the fact that they did that was amazing. And then the fact that they tried to connect you to your impact right off the bat was amazing. And the fact that they expressed gratefulness. I have a, a friend who's a great fundraiser that says you should say thank you five times before you ask again. Right. And so, but you have to be really diligent about that. And so it sounds like and and recognizing that maybe somebody may be a sustaining giver, which is so underappreciated within many nonprofits right now. And so the fact that they pulled all of that off in a welcome series is great. I mean, that is exactly what we're talking about. And and the other thing, and this will lead into part of the conversation, I think they also probably did. I think they also probably figured out what donor persona I fit into. Because I have noticed they stopped sending me emails. Like there's something about it where they said, oh yeah, this person's not opening email. Clearly not someone who's going to respond to email. So... Let's go old school. Um, and so they literally, I mean, and admittedly, they're like, they have American flag stamps on them. Not my, out of all the stamps the United States Postal Service produces, not my favorite. 
But um, I can just tell that they've put me in the donor persona. Probably people 20 or 30 years older than me, but they put me in a donor persona of, okay, suburban doesn't respond to email and we don't have a phone number, so we can't text them. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's powerful. If you can do that, especially in those first 30 days, like figure out basically how somebody's wired or at least what channels they respond to, like that's amazingly powerful if you can pull that off. Yeah. And, and so, and, and I think the first step of that in your book you talk about is creating those personas, which, you know, sounds like it's clusters of traits and lived experiences of people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we talk about both personas and then what to do with them. So the donor journey. And so if you haven't heard that before, the easiest way to think about personas is just think about three to five types of donors. Maybe just start with three that your organization have. So you have like the urbanite who's all digital and lives and buys by Netflix, you know, and you call them Eric, right? And you have the stay-at-home mom who's hurried and frantic and running around and lives out in the suburbs and you call her Judy. And you just sort of bucket your donors into these big buckets, like two or three of them. Mm. And they can be based on your cause areas, right? So we deal with malaria and clean water. Okay, we kind of have our malaria people over here and kind of have our clean water people over here. Just bucket them. And then begin to organize your content around what does what do the Judies of the world engage with most from us? What do they like the most, right? And then you can kind of, and which I think is where you're going, is, is map out a donor journey. And so you say, okay, for Judy, what channels is she going to be most responsive on, right? And the, whether it's, you know, for her, it's probably emails, probably looking at her phone all day, right? And so, and then you think, what content? Well, we know the Judies of the world typically open our videos like crazy. And so we're going to make sure that, that Judy has at least two videos about malaria during her first 30 days with the organization. And so it's like establish those personas, those big buckets, and then figure out what content and stories you have that, that create the most engagement um, to move them from, you know, one step, maybe that first time gift to a second gift, or maybe you know, those first couple of trial gifts to a major gift or moving somebody from giving to volunteer. And so you sort of map out where the paths people typically take through your organization and then sort of drip them along the way to move them to the next step. And I think in your book, you talk about the fact that the donor journey doesn't start at that first gift. The donor journey starts well before that first gift. That's right. Yeah, and it's that's so important. And it's just important to think about generosity that way in general is that your donors aren't checkbooks, right? They're people. And they're people that got engaged in your cause because it impacted them personally, right? So my mom is a stage four cancer survivor. And so if we give to cancer research, it's because it's coming from a deep personal conviction and lived experience, right? And so we have to, before that donor gives that first gift, the more you can understand who they are, what their intent is, what they care about, and give to them. Give them resources and opportunities to engage well before that first gift. And then when that first gift happens, it's going to happen more often, but it's going to, as a friend of mine says, it's going to move them from yes to heck yes, which means instead of tipping you 50 bucks, they might actually give you more money and be more loyal because they feel known. Which again, this stuff isn't trivial, but the more you can lean in and understand that those sort of ideas, the better you're going to be. And so as you think through those donor journeys, can you give us another example of one? Because one of the things I really took away from the book as well is, you know, each of your personas might have a very different donor journey. Yeah. So, you know, one we see often is actually 
it doesn't even lead to donation all the time, but it's understanding who your your advocates are and who your activists are. And this can potentially be a, a peer-to-peer fundraiser, right? So one of the things that we'll see often is if you know you have a group of donors that are between 18 and 24 years old, a lot of them are in college. They have uh, Twitter accounts and, you know, they're probably averaging 500 to 1,000 Twitter followers a piece. Like that group of people is not major donor material often, but what they are is your hands and your feet in the community. And they're the biggest megaphones for your cause. And so number one, it's looking for signals to identify who those folks are, right? And so it's like, who's 22 years old and has a lot of Twitter followers on our file right now or who we're in contact with. And then it's understanding what communication do I need to send that person and what are the right suggestions at the right steps to move them along. So for somebody like that, it's going to be like probably a little bit more email or even SMS based, honestly, a lot of text messaging. And it's going to be driving them to take action either online or take action in their community to send out a tweet on your behalf to promote your campaign to maybe organize a peer-to-peer campaign in their community. Those are going to be the actions that you're sort of moving them through along the way. But so much of that is just about how do you listen well to your donors are and so you can craft a donor journey that makes sense for them. Okay, so you asked the question. I'm going to turn it back around. How do you listen well? so that you can craft the donor journey? Yeah. So part of it's old school and part of it's cool new tech, right? So the old school part is call your donors and don't ask for money, just ask questions. And, And so the best organizations I know actually have their program team call donors or call potential donors and they don't even ask for money. They just say, what are you interested in? What do you know about your cause? What are you passionate about? And that's a really old school ground and pound way to do it. Uh, same with surveys. Like most great organizations are surveying donors or potential donors quarterly and asking, um, and you don't have to be your entire file, but maybe 20% of your file at a time and figuring out what they care about, how they respond, how they got engaged in the organization. So I would say phone calls and surveys just to ask <laughs> what you care about is a great way to start. Don't overburden a donor with like a, 40 question survey, just ask two or three questions to figure out what they care about, right? I, I've got to share with you on the surveys. And this is this is pre, not really pre-internet, but pre-global um, acceptance of using the internet. About 20 plus years ago, I was with an organization and we decided to survey lapsed donors. It was one of the most profitable things we ever did. Yes. Not only because some lapsed donors were really upset about something told us why they were upset but so many donors literally and again this is old time when people were afraid to put their credit card information online but so many donors literally would reply back with the survey and a check saying oh sorry i did not realize i was a lapsed donor now i do because you wanted to ask me questions about it yes that's so great the funny part there is like all the lapse research i've seen that's similar to that something like 80 percent of lapsed donors don't they would never self-identify as lapsed. They have no idea they've lapsed. They just say, oh yeah, I give to that organization. They don't They don't think of themselves that way. Right. So, so that's old school, which I love. New school is big data, right? So the tech stack that you use should know when somebody visits your website and should be able to tell a fundraiser on your team if somebody visits your website. It, you should be able to look at opening click rates 
in your email down to the donor level. So you know which donors are engaging in email and how often. You should be able to pull in not just wealth data, which is pretty common at a lot of larger nonprofits, but you should be able to pull in social media data. So the example I used with our college age activist, I should be able from their email address to go get their Twitter handle, integrate with Twitter to see how many Twitter followers they have without having to bug them about it. I should be able to know geolocation of all my data or all my donors. So I should know how people are grouped around neighborhoods in a particular community. And so those are the sort of the big data pieces that if you can pull in those pieces of data and then have the right reporting and analytics, you can really get dangerous around how, how you're tailoring communication. So most of those items, had I not read your book, I would have known, okay, here's how the CRM does that. One that I was like, when you first said it, I'm like, well, how in the world are you going to get this data in your CRM? And then you explained it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And that's knowing when donors and prospects go to your website and which pages they visit. So how do you actually get that information from web visitors and then get it into your CRM? Yeah, it's it gets pretty techy, but it's called a pixel. So it's the same magic that Facebook and Google use. And so if you've ever been on Facebook and Instagram, and you know, for me, Facebook will tell me, oh, the Avet brothers are playing in your neighborhood in two months. You should go to that concert. And I'll be like, how did Facebook know where I lived? And how did they know I like the Avet brothers? But magically they do, right? And then they're using something called a, a pixel on websites to track behavior. And so you can actually use this. Some people, you know, there's obviously some sort of moral qualms right now about that. And some of that technology is being shut down. But if you're not invasive about it, we see it as a great way to understand how your donors are engaging. So you can run a, put a pixel on your website. It's just a little bit of JavaScript that'll actually say, oh, like Doff just visited our website and it'll track your visit and it'll write it back to your donor account. And then you can, the cool thing is you can use marketing automation with that. So let's say Doff visits your website, goes to your donation page and it gets a little bit squeamish and bails before he puts in his credit card, okay? you can actually say, oh, he bailed on the donation page. I want to send him an email the next day to say, hey, you know, here's something cool we're doing. You should maybe think about donating to try to recover that lost donation mm -hmm. or that bailed form. So all possible through technology. Some of the leading organizations are doing this stuff every day. And you've probably seen, even from your favorite brands, I buy shirts at Nordstrom. Nordstrom does this to me all the time. If I put a couple of things in my cart and don't finish the checkout, Guaranteed Nordstrom's going to send me an email to say, don't you really want those shoes? And I'll go, oh, gosh, I do really want those shoes. And I'll go finish it out. And they're also going to follow you all over the web, too. You know, so like everywhere <laughs> yes. you go, there's going to be an ad for Nordstrom's and the shoes, shoes or the shirt or whatever. That same kind of technology. We just think if we're using it for good to generate generosity in the world, then that's a win for everybody. And so you'd mentioned that currently there are some qualms around some of that tracking, but you said mm -hmm. there's ways to do it that are ethical. What are those ways? I'm super curious. Yeah. And so number one, I think with data privacy in general, we have to go out of our way to honor our, our donors' privacy, right? And so we never want to use means to acquire data that wouldn't normally be publicly available. We want to guard their data like crazy. Number two, we want to be really transparent, right? And so we don't ever want to hide things from donors or the way we're getting their data. And so they know exactly what it is. We want to tell them what's happening. And if there's just sensitive stuff, even if it is available publicly, like 
you know, it's probably just best to avoid it. But we think uh, if you do all three of those well, what you do is end up providing a more personal experience from your donors without being creepy, right? Mm-hmm. And which is kind of the, you know, that that line that gets crossed, there's some big legal language about data privacy around it, but really it's the difference between creepy and not creepy. And if you find yourself going over into creepy land, you should probably back off a little bit. You know, I like that description. I like that description a lot. And so the other subject that I came across in your book that I was like, oh, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by this concept. And I guess in my gut, I always had this sense of like, especially with major donors, oh yeah, this person, you know, I'm concerned they're on the fence. Maybe they're not going to give again next year. But it's something that you call prelapse, and that's obviously the behaviors or interactions that someone starts to exhibit before they actually lapse as a donor. And with major donors, yeah, we try to keep our our thumb on that pulse. With non-major donors, that's a lot more difficult. But talk to us about some of those signs of prelapse. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's a couple of things there. You're right. Like old school fundraisers, this is the world I grew up in. You'd look at your Cybunt or Libunt report. It's, you know, they gave last year, but, but unfortunately not this year yet, which is good for major donors because you kind of expect, oh, they're going to give in December and they gave last December, but they haven't given this December yet. And that's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of your file, it gets a little bit more sophisticated because you have people that are giving um, 70 bucks a month on monthly appeals. Well, you shouldn't wait 13 months to decide whether that person might be lapsing, you know, if a month goes by and you miss a check, you might want to follow up. You don't need to wait 13 months to follow up with that person if they typically give. So number one, you have to look at patterns and giving and find out when that pattern is broken. And so that can be a good, you know, most owners, you're not going to say they're lapsed because they weren't went 60 days without giving. But if you have somebody that gives faithfully every 30 days and yeah, 60 days is a big deal. You should check in on, them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's good, just giving patterns. Um, but the other one is engagement. And so if you have somebody that you know opens emails every month and then they go, you go a couple months, they haven't touched your email, they haven't been to your website, they sort of just fall off the map. Like even if they've given a gift, what you would call recently, it still might be a good time to check in just to make sure, you know, uh, they're doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good, that's a good time if somebody sort of stops engaging digitally and they typically do. It's a good time to prop somebody on your team to give them a quick phone call. Hey, just want to check in. How are you doing? Is there any questions about the organization we should answer for you? Mm-hmm. So that the digital engagement tracking and, and giving behavior tracking are great ways. And they sound like little things, but really like if you're typically churning out, let's say half your donors every year, which is typical for nonprofits, they lose about half their donors every year, right? If you can implement one or two of these things and you move that from you're retaining 50% to you're retaining 57%, like over a four or five year period, that ends up being a lot of money and a lot of donors. So it's just it's important. Absolutely. I'll, I'll share with you the one thing I found, and again, this is more old school fundraising, but the number one way to retain your monthly donors, other than talk to them when you're not asking them for their credit card information, is follow up with them a couple months before their credit card is about to expire. Like it is the number one way to maintain your monthly donors. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. Businesses get this, right? Like, you know, people that are our customers, we're following up a couple of years before their contract, or a couple of months before the contract comes up. We just want to make sure they're doing okay. Um, so yes, that phone call is critical before credit card expires. Also in 2021, if you don't have a system that auto renews credit cards, you should. 
we walk into so many organizations and the reality is Visa and other card providers, if, if you lose your card and you get a new card number, they have the ability to update your recurring gift with that new card number automatically. And most of like net Netflix will do this for you. Amazon will do this for you, but most nonprofits, if somebody loses their card, they just, Oh, they stop giving. And so um, if you don't have an auto updater for your credit cards a day through your online giving system, you should, that's just a side note, but I've, I've seen that like literally be worth millions of dollars to some auto nonprofits. As someone who's not as tech savvy on these things, I appreciate that side note because I was not aware there was a way to just auto update. Wow. That's really cool. Of course, then you also lose the touch with the donor, but you know, you can touch the donor in some other way. You should call them anyway. Yes. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, Gabe, I'm so glad you came on and share with us a little bit about your book, Responsive Fundraising, and the process of responsive fundraising. You know, every episode, we've got this off-the-map question. And I understand that you and your son have run the Grand Canyon. And I'm so curious about this, in part because I can think of like five different ways to run the Grand Canyon. So I need to know what exactly that means. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you two things. One is, one is a, a great story, and one's a horrible story. So Running the Grand Canyon can mean you run up and down one rim, or you run from rim to rim, or you run from rim to rim to rim. So those are your options. Uh, my son and I ran, ran down and up the south rim. It was amazing, great experience, loved it. A year later, I attempted to run rim to rim to rim, which is about 52 miles, and you cover about two miles in elevation. And I got from rim to rim and I completely blew up. Like altitude sickness, heat exhaustion, the whole deal had to bail on the trip, which um, I like sharing that because, you know, even back to our fundraising conversation, I don't think uh, we always do a good job of sharing our failures. And I think sharing failures <laughs> builds trust and empathy. And so I share that because, oh my gosh, that was a train wreck of, a, of an attempt to do something cool, but it was a, it was a spectacular failure. Oh man. Are you going to try it again? Yes. In May, I got to do it. I can't, I can't have it conquer me. So I'm yep. going back in May to do it again. And so what's your training schedule going to look like? Now, now I'm just curious. Like I, I'm not, I'm not an avid runner, but I've done a little bit of running. What's your training schedule going to be like leading up to that? Yeah, probably about 50 miles of running a week. Okay. And so uh, like a 15 mile trail run on the weekends and then a lot of running during the week. And, you know, I'm, I'm 46 years old. And so that ends up being a lot of Advil, <laughs> a lot of achy nights, but it's worth it. Wow. Good for you. And yeah, cause like I'm doing the math, if it's like a 52 mile um, run. That's like two marathons back to back, just to put it in perspective. Wow. Yeah miserable. I don't know why I invite that kind of punishment on myself. <laughs> well, you know, and I've said this on, on the show before, my husband is an Ironman. It's done the 142 mile awesome. Ironman thing. And every now and then, you know, and I, I play my own sports and I try to stay active, but every now and then his friends will be like, when are you going to do an Ironman? My response is always never, <laughs> you know, like, like everyone has a different mountain and that one's not well, mine. That's okay. Yeah. That's no joke. I'm sure you've seen him train and it is insane. Just the hours you have to put in for an Ironman is no joke. It is. I mean, I'll share with you, he, he's, he's only done one in part. And now all listeners are like, wow, that's a bad spouse. But, but in part, so when Frank was doing the Ironman, I was picking up a lot more of the, the keeping things going at home. 
And yes. I was okay with that. And I said nothing about it. And then about three months after he finished his Ironman, I was there when he finished. It was a great celebration. But about three months after, I was like, you can do an Ironman again. But you will need to go to your firm and tell them you're going to work part-time for a six-month <laughs> training period because I'm not going to pick everything up at home again. Uh, so then he just went down to like um, um, half irons and Olympic distance because he was like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to work part-time. I'm like, all right, that's fine. But to- Totally agree. It is all-encompassing. So yeah. it sucks out every other part of your life for sure. It, it really does. Like, you know, like you wake up one morning and be like, oh, yeah, I have an 80-mile bike ride today. And then the next day you have like a 20-mile run. And somehow, you know, you're supposed to like actually be able to recover and do things after that. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to make sure, listeners, that you know how to reach Gabe and you also know how to find out more about Virtuous. One of the things that I really appreciated about Gabe is he did not go into great detail about the CRM, but I'm going to share a little bit with you about it. So the system that he describes in responsive fundraising in the book really is built for the CRM Virtuous. And so everything that he talks about, the CRM Virtuous is able to do, whether that is scraping social media pages, following those pixels, um, automating, et cetera. So if you're interested in this as a process and you want to know more about the CRM, go to virtuous.org. And also at that website, you'll not only find out about the CRM, but you'll also get resources that will help you as a fundraiser, treat all of your donors as a major donor. Gabe started our conversation with that, and it's just so incredible. We do live in a time today when every donor, your $25 donor, can feel like they're being treated like a $25,000 donor. So the other thing I want to make sure that you're aware of is that you can also find out about the Responsive Nonprofit Summit, and you can watch that on demand at virtuous.org. And finally, if you want to get the book, then go to Amazon.com. It is available there. Hey, Gabe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dop. It was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. So listeners, if you have enjoyed this conversation and you want to know more, and for whatever reason, it is easier for you to remember SuccessfulNonprofits.com than Virtuous.org, head on over to SuccessfulNonprofits.com, and we're going to link to Virtuous.org in our show notes. And if you've really enjoyed this conversation and you want a couple more that might spark interest and new ideas, I want you to check out episode 156 with Chantel Chambliss, Fundraising for Sustainability. And then I also want you to go into the Wayback Time Machine like four years ago and check out episode 72, Make Your Board an Engaged Fundraising Machine with Kim Horton and Greg Giles. In that episode, they actually talk about the partnership between the executive director and the development director to really create a board that goes out and raises money like you would never believe. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And if you stuck around this far, you're an avid listener, but I, you know, I got to give you the disclaimer because the lawyers make me do it. Neither I nor the Goldenberg Group. Oh, you know what? That's great. Hey, Stuart, don't edit that out because most people don't actually even get this far to hear the disclaimer. Let's start over. Here's the disclaimer. I am not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. You know, I say this at every episode.
So let me just say that this show and this episode is for informational purposes only. And you know, it should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. And so my radical idea I'm going to leave you with today is if you find yourself in need of that, please, please do yourself a favor, do the universe a favor, and find a qualified, licensed professional who can give you the counsel that you need. And if you're not sure who you should be talking to, reach out to me. If I know someone in your area, I'm happy to make the connection.